I think uh, Sissy had too much coffee today. <laughs> that usually happens on Sundays here. Get myself set up. Okay. Uh, thank you all very much. Those of you that responded to the call for Vacation Bible School, I'm excited about that. We can press on now. But uh, there's a lot of work to do, so keep the staff and uh, the leadership uh, and the volunteers for Vacation Bible School in prayer between now and this summer. Uh, we have to come up with a date. We have to come up with a curriculum and all of that. So there's a lot of work to do, but we're thankful for your response. And then I, I do want to uh, remind those of you that are ushers, greeters, and uh, a part of the security team that this coming Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, the 23rd, Saturday morning, 10 o'clock, the 23rd, Saturday morning, 10 o'clock. Now, I'm, I'm just kind of repeating this because uh, I had some guys come and say, oh, you know, I couldn't make it yesterday. I said, or, or I, said, I couldn't make it today. This was yesterday. Uh, and I said, to what? To the meeting? I said, it's next week. Oh, so you better be there. See, so, you know, so we give you the bulletin. We put it up there. We, you know, I tell you. So, yeah, the meeting is this coming Saturday at 10 o'clock. So those that are already involved in ushers, greeting, and, and uh, security. But also those of you that would like to be a part of that ministry, please come. It's only going to be about an hour meeting, but I'm going to do as much as I can to fit it all into uh, between 10 and 11, because I know Saturdays are very precious to everybody. So make sure that you come early, get here to, you know, before 10, so we can start right at 10, get that meeting done, then you have the day. But uh, there's a lot uh, that, uh, that I want to share about this ministry from my heart, the importance of it and all. So I uh, look forward to seeing you all then on Saturday at 10 o'clock, the 23rd. All right. I think we drove that one into the ground. All right. Today we are going to begin our study of uh, Genesis chapter 25. I've entitled this study, Abraham, When God We Trust. Now, that's supposed to sound like the stuff written on our coins and our money, right? In God We Trust. The only problem is with so many people with not too much of that money or not too much of that coinage and all, a lot of them aren't trusting God anyway. But for us, we need to look at the life of Abraham overall. Now, we've been studying Abraham for quite a long while. But what we need to learn about Abraham is that he trusted God. And when he trusted God, he was blessed. When God we trust, God blesses. When God we trust, God blesses. Now, it isn't a matter of thinking that God blesses only with things that are visible or things that are external or things that are material because the most important blessing is what He gives us in this life and the life to come. So keep that in mind as we go through our study here. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 25 today. So let's begin with verse 1 of Genesis 25. Now, we're coming here now to the end of the life of Abraham, but it's also the beginning of the lives of Isaac and Jacob. So uh, we're, we're actually entering into a new chapter, as it were, uh, of this grand story and this grand account. But in uh, verse 1, it says, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Yokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. 
six sons. Yokshan begat Sheba and Dedan. These are prominent names in the scriptures. We'll talk about that later. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. And the sons of Midian. Midian, of course, the Midianites. So that's an important name. The sons of Midian were Epha, Epher, Hanoch, Abida, and Elda'a. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. And then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, which we saw back in chapter 23. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah, his wife, And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac and Isaac dwelt at Be'er Lahairoi. Well, as we enter now into chapter 25 of the book of Genesis, there are some truths with some very grave distinctions that we want to observe overall in and from this chapter. We're going to see some distinctions between Abraham and Ishmael. For example, Abraham and Ishmael come to the end of their lives in this chapter. But then again, this is the beginning of Jacob and Esau, and they're embarking upon their lives as well. But the distinctions are important for us to understand. Two men look back on their lives while two men look forward toward their lives. This particular chapter of Genesis is a vista. It is a vantage point from which to survey the landscape of living life on this earth. As Abraham and Ishmael end their lives looking back, and as Jacob and Esau embark on their lives looking forward, we are encouraged to look around at our own lives. We are encouraged to look around in our own lives. We are encouraged to look at the Scriptures. We are encouraged to look at the Scriptures as the mirror for how we are to live our lives. And you know, many times, practically every week, I pose some questions to you. They're they're purposeful questions. Questions that you need to ask yourself. Questions that arise from our study of the Word of God because we need to keep examining ourselves until the day of Jesus Christ. And today is no different because today I have some questions for you to ask yourself. For example, do we find ourselves to be more like Abraham or Ishmael? Now, because we have studied Abraham and Ishmael already, we know their characters, we know what they represent. So it's an easy question to ask. Do we find ourselves to be more like Abraham or Ishmael? 
Do we find ourselves to be more like a man who has trust and faith in God or one who is trusting actually in the things of this world? The second question is a little harder. Do we find ourselves to be more like Jacob or Esau? Now we're going to come up later on to examine their lives. But for those of us who've already studied a little bit about Jacob and Esau, if we can get beyond the very fact that Jacob is a little bit devious at times in his life, nonetheless, he becomes a person who is actually an example of someone who does trust the Lord. While Esau, again, is one who doesn't so much trust the Lord as he trusts the things of this earth. So we're establishing here some questions out of the life of Abraham at the end of his life. And as we look at the lives of those who are to come yet in the scriptures, are we measuring up to some of them who are indeed trusting the Lord? So here's another question that that I want to ask you. What kind of life have we lived so far? Now, I want to include a little bit of the past, but I also want to include the present. When I ask you the questions here, I'm asking them in the past tense, but they're also being asked in the present tense. For example, what kind of life have we lived? Have we lived a life that believed God or a life that ignored God? Well, you have to apply that to the present as well. Do we live our lives today as those who believe God or do we ignore God? Are we ignoring God today? Do we live the kind of life that trusts in God's promises? Have we trusted in God's promises or are we rejecting His promises? Have we trusted and are we trusting in His promises now or have we rejected and are we rejecting His promises now? What kind of life have we lived? Have we lived a life that follows after the hope of heaven? Are we living a life right now that follows after the hope of heaven? In other words, am I living a life that is based upon an internal perspective or an earthly perspective? Because the second question is, of course, do we live a life that follows after the world and its possessions and its pleasures? Are we only following after those things or are we following after that which gives us an eternal perspective to life? What kind of life have we lived? A life that obeyed God or a life that willfully disobeyed God? What kind of life am I living today? Am I living a life that obeys God and obeys God's word? Or am I living a life today that disobeys God willfully? You know, we can cover all of that up by the facades that we put on. But only God knows what's really inside. You can fool me, but you can't fool the Lord. So the Word of God is, is here now to, to help us examine these questions or to have, have these questions help us examine our own hearts. Going back to these men that I've mentioned to you, Abraham and, and Ishmael and uh, Jacob and Esau, and in, you can include Isaac in all of this too, but what made these men different from one another? What made these men different from one another? If we only focus on, let's say, certain physical uh, differences or certain physical desires or characteristics, we could say that both Ishmael and Esau, you know, we, we'll find out that both of them were actually hunters. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. While Abraham and Jacob lived a more pastoral life, they, they like to dwell in tents, you know, the other guys like to be out in the good outdoors. Nothing wrong with all of those things. But those are physical or, or, or outward characteristics. But it wasn't so much their physical pursuits that separated them as it was their spiritual pursuits. Ah, that's the question. What are our spiritual pursuits? 
Because Abraham and Jacob, and you can include Isaac in this as well, Abraham and Jacob set their affections on eternity and it ruled their earthly pilgrimage. You know, that earthly perspective, or I should say, I'm sorry, that eternal perspective should rule our earthly pilgrimage. You all understand that? Our eternal perspective should rule our earthly pilgrimage. Ishmael and Esau, though on the other hand, they served their appetites and it ruined their eternal perspective. So when we start taking our eyes off of the things of God and off of the things of the Word of God and off of the things that are, that are eternally based, and we start putting them on the things of this world, our eternity and our, our perspective of eternity is going to suffer. So whether you are like Abraham and Jacob or you're like Ishmael and Esau, that is determined by whether you set your affections on the eternal or whether you serve your earthly appetites. And these are the questions that we need to ask ourselves today. Where have I set my affections? And by the way, when you consider the word affections from the standpoint of Scripture, you're dealing with your mind and your thoughts that is connected, or your mind and your thoughts that are connected to your heart. What you believe. Where have you set your affections? Where have you set your mind? Where have you set your heart? Where have you set your pursuits in this life? Many, many, many years later, the Apostle Paul made it clear where our affections are to be placed. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, Paul said this, If you then were raised with Christ, what does that mean, if you were raised with Christ? That means if you were raised through Christ in that you were buried with Him in baptism or were raised into newness of life, in other words, you gave your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and He has now raised you from death into life, so we all can understand that, right? So, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things. This is not a suggestion, it is a command. Seek those things which are above. Now, if we ever talk about things that are above in the Scriptures, we're dealing with that which has to deal with the eternal. So you are to seek those things which are above where Christ is. Where is Christ today? Is He among us today? Boy, we're not sure. Is He among us today? Yes, He is. He's right here with us. He says, I will be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake. I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to give you my spirit. And my spirit is going to be with you. I, he's here. We can rejoice. But you know where, he, where else He's at? He's, he's sitting at the right hand of God. So the reason why Paul puts that in is to remind us that we are still dealing with eternal issues. And that, our, and that our focus has to be eternal. That, that, that this is where our affections, these are, this is the place where our affections are supposed to be uh, placed. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on this earth. For you died, he says. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. We died? Yes. We die to our, ourselves, we die to our flesh, we die to sin, we die to death, we die to all of these things. Why? We're now made alive in Jesus Christ. You have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless you live, yet not us here together. We live, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. That's life now. 
So we've died to the old man. The old man is dead. The new man is raised to newness of life. And so our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then, and by the way, are you looking for him to come? Are you looking? I mean, really, are you looking? Are you ready for Jesus to come? Because I'll tell you this, he's coming. He said he's coming. He's coming. And we need to be ready. We need to be ready. The, the thing about it is, I can just, I can, I can say that till I'm blue in the face, but I want to know that you know that. I want you to know that He may come tomorrow. He could come next week. He could come tonight. Are we going to be ready? We can't have that attitude that says, well, you know, I've got a lot of business to, to take care of on this life or on this earth, in this life. And, and, you know, I just hope God gives me the time to do that. Whatever it is, that big deal, you know, I've got to get that big deal done. I've got to have this done. I've got to have the kitchen fixed. I have to have, you know, and we go down the line and all these things have to be done before Jesus comes. Who's, in, who's the Lord here? Jesus says, I'm coming. And you don't know when. So you better be ready. So here Paul says, when Christ, who is our life, appears. So guess what? He is coming. And we have to have that eternal perspective to know that. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Why? Because we're coming with Him. He's going to come first of all to get us, and then we're going to come with Him. We're going to appear with Him, and we're going to see Him. And isn't that the desire of every heart of a person who has been changed by the love of Christ, that we just want to see Him? We're ready to see Him. We're ready to love Him. We're ready to express our love to Him in worship and in praise. And by the way, when we get to heaven, we're going to do this for eternity. We're going to praise Him. You know, sometimes we don't sing very loud in church. We should. You know why? Because we're, we're, that's choir practice for, for heaven. We're just practicing for heaven. And the fact of the matter is, you're going to sing real pretty up there. So don't worry what you sing like here. You're going to sing real pretty up there. And then you're not just going to sing for a little while. You're going to sing for a long time. Because eternity is a long time. So, you know, the Lord is wanting us just to get ready for these things. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a cheerleader here. I'm just telling you, man, there's a passion that we need to have to see Christ come. There needs to be a passion that says, I'm going to live my life with an eternal perspective because Jesus is coming. I trust His Word that He's coming because He said, I'm coming again. I'm coming for you. So listen, Abraham... Abraham pursued eternity, you see. Abraham pursued eternity. Ishmael, on the other hand, he pursued the earthly. Because I want you to consider the contrast between Abraham and Ishmael for just a moment. Turn to Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10. And, and, and here in Hebrews 11, which is talking about the, 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 the hall of faith, you know, the people who had faith. Abraham, of course, is prominent in this chapter. But here in verses 9 and 10, Speaking of Abraham, it says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. The land that he was promised was, was promised by God to him. He says, Get out of your, where you live in Ur the Chaldees, get out of Haran or Harad, and then go to this land. It was the land of promise. And yet when he was in the land of promise, it was as if he was in a foreign country. Why? Because he was dwelling in tents, which is, by the way, significant of what? Tents are temporary, not permanent. So he's dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. His heart was in eternity looking for the city that only God can build, the city of the new Jerusalem. That was 
the heart of Abraham. On, on the other hand, in contrast, look at verse 16 of this chapter of Genesis 25, when it speaks of Ishmael. It says, these were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, twelve princes according to their nations. What Ishmael had was a legacy, in essence, a legacy here on earth. He had a name. He had a name that uh, he passed on, and, and it, was, it was written on, on settlements and towns on this earth. Folks, that was it. Do you see the difference? Abraham pursued eternity, a city whose maker and builder is God. Ishmael had cities here on earth, but that's all it says. There's a tremendous contrast here. Who do we want to be like? Whose faith or trust do we want to emulate in this life? Ishmael had established a name and a nation for himself on earth. Let me me give you another quick contrast here. Because we're told in this chapter that Abraham died full, but Ishmael died fallen. Now, you don't read that word fallen in the, in the text, but you read it in the Hebrew. You read it in the Hebrew. Abraham died full, and Ishmael died fallen. Let's look, first of all, at, at Abraham in verse 8. Hello. There we go. Let's look at verse 8. It says, And Abraham breathed his last, and he died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Now, if you look at the word full there, Right after the word full is the word of year, or the words of years, the little phrase of years. That in most Bibles, especially King James and New King James uh, versions, uh, those words are in italics, which tells us that uh, they, they were added to give us some context to the text uh, that, that was given to us, but they're not in the original Hebrew. So what it says in essence is that Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age, an old man and full. He was just full. That's what it says. And, and this is significant because if you look then at the life of Ishmael, then verses 17 and 18 of this same chapter, it says these were the years of the life of Ishmael. 137 years. So Ishmael had a long life. And he breathed his last and he died, uh, speaking similarly to the death, you know, the physical death of Ishmael, just like Abraham's physical death. There's a word for that in the Hebrew. It's called mut, M-O-O-T-H, as we pronounce it, but it's... It's in Hebrew. Uh, so, that, that you know, they, they died physically. But notice this. There's another word that is used for death later uh, in verse 18. It says, He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Uh, they dwell from Havilah, far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. But then it says, He died in the presence of all his brethren. Now, that word is interesting because it's not the same kind of death. Or, or this, you know, when he died here, it's speaking of something totally different. In the, in the Hebrew, that word literally means he fell. He fell. He was fallen as if, as if he had fallen short in his life. He had fallen short of his accomplishments. He had fallen short of his goals. He had fallen short of his desires. He fell short in the presence of all his brethren. Isn't that interesting? That that phrase and that word is used for Ishmael, but not for Abraham. Because of Abraham, it says, he was full. Which means this. Abraham was satisfied. He was satisfied. He had satisfaction 
Now, we're not talking that, you know, the Rolling Stones kind of satisfaction here. Remember that song? Who remembers that song by the Rolling Stones? I can't get no satisfaction. Okay, those are all the old guys. Okay. In the church. But Abraham was satisfied, full, in this life and in the life to come. That is what is describing here. Abraham died full and satisfied in this life and in the next. Well, Ishmael fell short. He fell short of his desires. Because that is the implication of the word in the context of Ishmael's life. He fell short of his desires. And this is in the presence of his brethren. What were his desires if they weren't the same desires as Abraham's? Abraham's desires were eternal. Ishmael had a legacy, but it was earthly. Abraham has a a legacy that is eternal. We are the children of Abraham if we trust in the Lord. So while we walk with God, are we walking with Him full? Or will we fall short of all of our worldly desires when our time comes? When our time comes to depart from this earth, up until then, will we be walking full with God? Or will we fall short? Because what what Ishmael fell short in was also his pursuit of the things of God. And we fall short of our pursuit of the things of God when we put more attention on the things of this world. It does make sense, doesn't it? When God we trust, He will bless. So now with that in mind, This is the foundation of what we're going to look at in these first 11 verses. Let's look at the first four verses of the text again. It says, Abraham again took a wife. And her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Yokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Yokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim and Letushim and Leumim, and the sons of Midian were Epha, Epher, Hanoch, Abida, and Elda'ah. All these were the children of Keturah. Now here in, in Genesis 25, Keturah is called Abraham's wife. He took a wife. She bore him six children. But we're told in First Chronicles that Keturah was Abraham's concubine. Notice it says in First Chronicles 132, now the sons born to Keturah, Abraham's concubine were, and they're the same names that we just read, so we don't need that tongue twisting again. But uh, they're called, she's called Abraham's concubine here. Now, she's a wife, but she's called a concubine. Let's try to understand that in the, in the process of understanding the culture of Abraham's time. First of all, as we've read these first four verses, this first account of Abraham's end, the end of Abraham, co- covers the birth of the nations to Abraham. You do, you do remember that the Lord promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations. So, and we'll get to that in just a moment. So this is a fulfillment of that promise. But after Sarah's death... And now at the age of about 143, 
And by the way, between chapter 24 and the end of chapter 20, well, the end of uh, Abraham's life, it was about another 35 years. So Abraham was, was about 143 when all this was starting to take place at the beginning of this chapter. Abraham was probably very lonely. Isaac and Rebekah had moved south to Be'er Lahiroi, as we've seen in our text, after their marriage. And so without any family living close, Abraham takes a new wife, as Keturah is called in verse 1. But as we've seen, she's also called his concubine, more than likely to distinguish her rank from Sarah. Now, she is also labeled as a concubine to make clear to us that she may have begun as a slave in Abraham's household, but had now taken a new role. And, and I believe that this is probably what is true, is that she was, uh, there were many slaves in Abraham's household, and uh, those who were wealthy had slaves, and, and many times the, the, the females were, were sometimes used as concubines to, to bear children, as we remember of another concubine, which was Hagar, who gave birth to Ishmael. She became a concubine in that particular sense. And by the way, remember this. It was not Abraham's plan. It was not Abraham's desire. He wanted to believe God that he was going to have a son through, through Sarah. Sarah kept pushing this idea. Here's Hagar. Take her as a wife. Take her, as, in essence, you know, as, as someone that you can have relations with so that you can have a child and you can bear a child. So he does that. Okay, I'll take her. And, you know, he goes through that process. And, and, she, and Hagar has a son, Ishmael. But it's not the son of promise. Because all it brought was tension in the home. All it brought was tension in the household between Hagar and Sarah. And Sarah getting mad at Hagar. And Hagar, you know, making fun of Sarah. And all just, they were just a terrible situation. Because they didn't follow God's plan. You see. So I mentioned that just because Hagar then is a concubine. And, and as we read in just a moment, there, there are concubines, which I would almost have to believe are only Keturah and, 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 uh, and Hagar. But nonetheless, there's a new role. She is his wife now. But whatever the case, Keturah bore six sons for Abraham. Now the point to see in the, in the account of Keturah and her sons is the blessing of God upon Abraham. Because this is a fulfillment of prophecy. The Lord had promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations, as he did in, in Genesis 17 verse 4. He says, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. So this passage shows how God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. God was using Abraham, even in his elderly years, to give rise to a people who would later become part of the great Arab nations of the world. Now, it wasn't just in Ishmael, but also then in the sons of Keturah. But understand this, and I, and I have to tell you this. You know, we, we can think of Ishmael being one who should have put his trust in the Lord because I'm sure Abraham taught him to put his trust in the Lord. But Abraham didn't do that. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Ishmael didn't do that. Ishmael should have done it because he had more sons than, than, uh, than Abraham. When you examine this, Ishmael had more land given to him than, than, uh, than Abraham. He had a lot more of what was physical or material, yet Abraham was blessed and Ishmael fell short. Isn't that interesting? But in Abraham's life now, as old as he is, 
God blesses him with more family. As old as he is, God blesses him with more children. Because God keeps his promises, you see. The Lord always fulfills his promises to us. Whether old or young, God will still use us and work through us. No matter how old you are. I can tell you this. Sometimes we ache, our hearts hurt when our loved ones are dying, when they're old, and, and, and you know, we, we just realize somehow they're just coming to the end of their years. But I want to encourage you with something. I want to encourage you with this. As long as they're breathing, God has given them that breath for a reason. God has given them that breath for a purpose. And you need to pray to, that God gives you the understanding of why. But but here's the thing. There's always purpose. As long as there's breath, there's purpose. It may be to bring someone in closer to the Lord. It may be to, to you know, just to show the power that God has, has overcome so much and so many things for us that we can see it in a life that is filled and, and, and has been lived fully for the Lord. There's so many reasons. But, you know, we, we may not know the, the whys, but we know that as long as God has given life, He's given breath. God never takes life for granted. So understand, God will use you when you're old. God will use you when you're young. He will fulfill His promises to us and through us no matter how old we are. That is our God. Now Solomon's benediction, the son of David, Solomon's benediction at the dedication of the temple contains these words, and I want you to see it in 1 Kings 8, verse 56. It says, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to His people Israel according to all that He promised. But notice these words. He says, There has not failed one word of all His good promise. Folks, if you underline anything in your Bibles, underline that. There has not failed one word of all His good promise, which He promised through His servant Moses. There has not failed one word of His promise. God is faithful to keep His promises. That is why we can trust God. And that's why we shouldn't have to doubt or or fear what God can do because God is faithful to keep all of His promises. Paul, when he speaks of of, of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, this is what Paul said. He said he did not waver, speaking of Abraham, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced. Listen, Abraham was fully convinced that what God had promised, God was also able to perform. That is the kind of faith that you and I need to have. Not only do we have confidence and that we're fully convinced that what God has promised He is going to do, but He has the ability to do it. God can do it. God will do it if He's promised it. We have to trust that. And as we continue on in chapter 25, Abraham is careful to set Isaac apart from all the rest of his children as the child of promise. This is quite interesting. Look at verses 5 and 6. We have to move on here in our text. But it says in verses 5 and 6 that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Now we said this last week because it was mentioned in chapter 24 as well. He gave all that he had to Isaac. Yet, at the same time, look at verse 6. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac his son, to the country of the east. He sent them away. This second account of Abraham's end covers the division of his estate and the strict protection of Isaac. You know, there's no question that Abraham was wealthy. There's no, there's no question. He had large herds of livestock. He was also very rich 
in gold and silver. But now I want you to take note that Abraham willed all that he had to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to his six sons. No doubt the gifts were large enough for the sons themselves to get a strong start, maybe, let's say, in farming or in ranching or in some other business, but they all received something from Abraham. This is how wealthy Abraham was. Now, follow through with the typology that we've had between Abraham and Isaac, Isaac being the types of, of God the Father and God the Son. Because God the Father has everything. He owns all things. Everything is His. He created all things. Everything's His. But then He gives everything to Jesus. Jesus has all power, all authority. And, and you know, so we see the typology there together. But He still gives gifts to the sons of men. He still gives gifts. And, and it just tells us, you know, God is so rich. Well, Abraham was very rich. And so as he neared his departure from this earth, Abraham gave his wealth to Isaac and he gave the land that God had promised to him, gave it to Isaac. And then he sent his other sons eastward and away from Isaac, but he didn't send them away empty. He sends them with stuff, but he sends them away. Why? Why would Abraham send his sons away from Isaac? Some interesting reasons. First of all, he sends them away to protect Isaac from any possibility of conflict over his estate. Now this is, this is really significant because, listen, you know all that stuff going on in the Middle East today? How all these Arab nations, you know, are just, you know, they may not like each other, but they have one thing in common, they don't like Israel. And they want to get rid of Israel. This whole conflict comes back to this. When everybody else is trying to figure out why the world is in such a mess, they haven't read the scriptures. We have. That whole conflict is because of this. And what's interesting is that Abraham, of course, is held in high esteem in the Islamic religion. But they've also changed the truth. We have the truth with us. God willed everything to Isaac. Isaac was to be the son of promise. To bring forth, ultimately, the promised Messiah. Therefore, when he gives all to Isaac, he is giving us the typology that God the Father has given to Jesus Christ, all the authority. All authority, all power is given to Jesus. So we know who Messiah is. So, this thing with the Middle East, and we'll talk a little bit more about this next, next week as well, because we're, we're touching on these prophetic issues. But that's what's happening over there. We see it here. And, and of course, you know, they're all family. But they hate Israel. Why should they have the land? Why should they have this? Why should they have that? Why should they have God's blessing? Isn't that what happens with families sometimes? Somebody passes, they go to settle a will, and everybody says, well, he wanted me to have this. He wanted me to have that. We can't just settle 
God has given us life and blessings beyond our understanding. So he protects Isaac from any possibility of conflict over his estate. He sends everybody away. Because he's responsible, you see. Abraham was responsible. Secondly, he did this to protect Isaac from any chance of worldly influence from a close family member who would be living nearby and living a worldly compromising life. Abraham had to keep Isaac as separated from worldly influence as possible. Remember why he was not to have a wife that was a pagan wife? Because of the typology. Isaac was a type of Jesus Christ. Isaac has one bride, Rebecca. Jesus has one bride, the church. You see the type. So Abraham had to keep Isaac as separated from worldly influence as possible. God's covenant, the covenant established with Abraham, was to be established with Isaac as well. The Lord had made this very clear to Abraham. And there's a strong lesson here for us. Because Abraham took care of his last will and testament before he died. He was responsible, in other words. He did not leave his property for children to fight over. He knew that his property was a gift from God, a trust put into his hands by God, a trust for which he was responsible. Abraham treated his property as a trust from God. He was to be held accountable for how he handled that property. Therefore, he gave the property, all of his estate, to the son who was a true believer and who was serving God. That's why he received what he received. So this brings up the issue of separation. There's satisfaction in the life of Abraham, but Abraham understood what separation was all about. Because Abraham never deviated from the spiritual righteousness of this course of action. In every decision, Abraham bore clear witness to the fact that the spiritual and the carnal, or the worldly, cannot and must not be mixed. We are not to mix the spiritual with the carnal. Unfortunately, that's happening too often in our churches today. The Lord told Abraham, get thee out. Remember when he told him to get out of Ur of the Chaldees? The Lord appears to Abraham and says, get out of this land and, and, and leave this family and go to a place where I tell you to go. He didn't even know where to go. But he got out. But he settled in Haran, and in Haran he, the Lord meets him again. He says, get out of here and go to the land. Get out. That's separation, folks. God established separation in the life of Abraham. And Abraham understood this more and more as separations began to occur. He, he left home, he left his family, he left his friends. He, he separated from Egypt, from the best of lands. He separated from, from his nephew Lot. He, he, he even sent Ishmael away and he made his servant uh, uh, Eliezer swear that he would never take a bride for Isaac from among the women of Canaan. And so he sends his children by Keturah. He sends them away too. They could have no portion with Isaac. Why? Because the son of promise had to come through Sarah, Sarah and Sarah alone. Is this, is this making sense now? Didn't matter that he had other sons and that they had other sons that became nations. That was a promise by God. The important thing was to keep Isaac pure. Because through Isaac would come the Messiah. Through Jacob would come the Messiah. So they could have no portion with Isaac, they, nor could they live where they might influence Isaac. There could be no compromise. We learned something interesting from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17. 
Paul says, therefore, commit out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Do you notice that Paul is quoting? There's quotation marks there. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. Paul is quoting from the Hebrew Scriptures. He quoted from Isaiah 52, verse 11, where it says, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. He, he, said, he quotes from Ezekiel 20, verse 34, that says, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. Later in verse 41, he says, I will accept you as a sweet aroma when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. He says, I will separate you. And Paul takes that and says to the church, you see, don't get the idea that only the Jews have to be separated from the peoples. We need to also be separated. We need to have a life that is set apart from the world and set apart unto God. Yeah, we, we need to be separated from this earth. Yes, we live on this earth, but we're not part of it anymore. We are citizens of heaven. We are members of the body of Christ. We are no longer of this world. We are of the kingdom of God. We need to be separated from these things. We have to be careful how we live our lives in this world so we can walk in a manner worthy of the calling of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the third account covers the death of Abraham, the great man of faith. That's verses 7 through 11. You'll notice how small the letters are. I don't want you to read this. I want you to look at your Bibles. Okay. I did that on purpose. Okay. Verse 7, it says, This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived. 175 years. And then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, and an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Be'er Lachai Roy. The Lord had promised Abraham a good life, hadn't he? Genesis 15, verse 15. It says, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Well, God kept his promise there as well. And Abraham had completed his life to the fullest degree. He had completed his life to the fullest. Being satisfied with life and all of its blessings. In a word, Abraham was also successful. Abraham lived a triumphant life. Now, I say that. But I want to use this word successful in its most biblical sense that I may not be misunderstood. I don't want you to misunderstand me here today. Because I'm not going to stand here in front of you and say, you know what, God wants you to be rich. God wants you to have everything. God wants you to be better than everybody else. God wants you to have everything. God wants you to have five car, a five-car garage and, and, and each filled with every car that you like to have. And this, this kind of I'm not, to, I'm not here to tell you that, okay? That's not what the Bible teaches us. Was Abraham wealthy? Yes, he was. Why? Because God made him wealthy for a reason. To be able to do all the things that he did and to show us how rich our God is. But folks, Abraham's life was difficult and it was hard. 
You know, you're not often told that, are you? We just think, well, Abraham was blessed by God and he was rich and, and he had all... The... Abraham lived a hard and difficult life. How would you like to live for so many years? Live beyond the years of, of childbearing, knowing that you'll never have a child that in your own culture says, you know, there's a problem with that. And you'll never have a child, you know, that you can call your own. And you go way beyond childbearing years and you can hear people saying this and that. Oh, poor Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, poor Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, they're, 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 you know, they, there's something wrong with them. Going through life, you know, having to deal with culture and society as well as dealing with, with your own sense of loss. That's hard. It's hard. I know a bit about that. And then there are all the other things that Abraham had to go through. We talked about them. But they were hard things. He faced trial after trial. Abraham was, was tried as if by a fire. Sometimes he stood tall and he conquered those trials. And other times he crumbled under the weight of some of them and he failed the Lord. Does that, does, can anyone relate with that? We have victories sometimes and we say, oh, praise the Lord. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sometimes we fail the Lord and, and, and we're not so happy anymore. Right? And we, we walk around dejected. Oh, my goodness. And the weight of those burdens are just on us. How you doing, brother? I'm fine. <laughs> we're not fine. We just faced a trial. And we didn't pass. There were times when Abraham didn't pass a trial. But what I love so much about Abraham is this. That even when he, when he failed, he confessed to God. He went to the Lord. And he repented. And he always turned back to God. He always turned back to God. And he followed Him more diligently and closer than ever. So every lesson that, every lesson that, that Abraham learned from God through those trials and even the failed trials, it just drew him closer to the Lord. And, and you know, think about 175 years of that. How, who's close to 175 here? Anybody? You know. But if those trials have brought you closer, how close do you think he was to the Lord? And growing. Growing more and more in wisdom and knowledge for 175 years. Simply stated, Abraham lived a triumphant life. He had a long and difficult pilgrimage to travel through life, longer than any of us. Some of us are already complaining in the age of 40, you know, oh, I'm just getting dark, I'm getting old, 40 years old. Add 135 more years to that. You think I'm crazy, but Abraham lived it. He had a long and difficult pilgrimage to travel through life, but he believed God and he followed after God, and the Lord blessed him for it. And God will bless you for it when you trust Him. I think of, of this issue of success this way. It comes from Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where God says to Joshua, after Moses has, has gone on to be with the Lord, and, and now Joshua is leading the children of Israel, He says, God, God says to Joshua, He says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous. Stay in God's Word, and you will know what it means to be successful in the sight of God. 
and to be prosperous in the, in the things of God, then you will have good success. God does want us to have good success in this life. But it isn't measured by our bank accounts or by what we have in our garages or, what, or the size of our homes. It is measured in our trust, in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, have I not commanded you? Do you notice there are no suggestions here with God? He commands, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God says, I'm going to be with you. You want to know who's, your, who's, who's the, the key to your success? It's me. The key to our success is having a relationship with our God and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6-10. through 10. He says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Okay, half of you have. Okay, well, we've got to work on the rest of you. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? So walk in Him. Not a suggestion, it's a command. So walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Did you thank the Lord this morning for the things that you have? Did you thank Him for your breath? Did you thank Him for life? Did you thank Him for an alarm clock to get you here? I know it's the last service and it's already afternoon. But man, we needed help to get here this morning, even though it was 11 o'clock. But you're here. Did you thank Him for it? Do we thank the Lord for all the blessings that He gives us? We're to abound in it with thanksgiving. Then he gives a warning. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. I can tell you this. Many people are being deceived today by, by these philosophies and empty deceits of saying that you can have this and you can have that. It's all the principles of the world. It is not according to Christ. Because in nine, verse 9 it says, For in Him Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Jesus, in Jesus dwells all the fullness. And you are complete in Him. Do you know what that means? You are full in Him. You are complete in Jesus. Who is the head of all principality and power. You are full of the blessing of Christ's presence. He who has power over all. He who is the head over all principality and over all power. Has God not blessed you? Lastly, Abraham was gathered to his people. That's verse 8. These words are quite significant, that Abraham was gathered to his people. The words could not mean that Abraham was being buried with family and relatives, nor with any other people. Abraham had no people buried at the burial site of Machpelah except who? Sarah. The words must therefore refer to life after death. What does that bring us back to? Eternity. It brings us back to eternity. Abraham was being gathered to the believers who had gone on before with Noah and Shem and Seth and Adam and and all the other believers, Enoch, all those who trusted in the Lord at the very beginning, Abraham was being gathered because he was being gathered to life with God and to eternity. You see, that's what is so important for us to remember. 
Take hold of the words of Job in Job 19, verses 25 through 27. Job had the right perspective. Listen to this perspective. He said, For I know that my Redeemer lives. Can we say that today? Can we say with confidence, I know that my Redeemer lives? You know, we may be a few days away or a day away or an hour away from, from meeting our, our, our Master face to face. We don't know what's going to happen when we leave these doors today. We hope and pray we'll be here as long as God wants us, but you know, we don't know. But if, if we, even if we did know, would we be able to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that He lives. I know it because He's given me life. And He shall stand at last, as He goes on to say, He shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job's heart yearned to see God. Abraham, even though he had met God, at times God did visitations, but God had to come in a, in a form that Abraham could handle because if God had just come as God before Abraham, he'd have wiped him out. He'd wipe any of us out because of his, because of his eternity and of, of his glory. But here's the thing. He yearned again to see God. He yearned to be with God. We need to yearn to be with God. We need to take seriously the words of, of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life, life that never ends. That is what is important for the believer to understand, that it is more than this life. God has blessed us to have a life that is to come. We've got to get beyond this life. We all pay bills, right? We all, you know, our cars break down. We have to take them in. We have to get them fixed or we have to get a new one or whatever. Tires go out, you know, all kinds of things. We have blowouts. A couple of winters ago, our, our plumbing went sky high, right? When we had the freeze. Everybody's getting plumbing fixed. Oh, this is, this is what happens here. Has God not provided? He has provided, hasn't He? Good. Why? So that we can remember. It isn't about this life. It's about the life to come. We've got to continue to push ourselves toward that eternal perspective. And we need to stay in that eternal perspective. Do we live life here on earth? Yes, of course we do. Why? So that we can be witnesses of Jesus Christ. So that we can be examples of the love of Christ. So that we can be examples of the blessings of God given to those who trust in the Lord with all their heart and, that, and, and never lean toward their own understanding. God loved the world that He gave. What did He give in Jesus? He gave totally, didn't He? Did He not give everything to Jesus? But He also gave Jesus to be everything for us. He died. He gave His life. He gave His blood. And that is what has saved us. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Let me leave you with one last scripture. John 10.10, 10, it says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life. Life, zoe, in the Greek, zoe, z-o-e, zoe, not b-i-o-s, bios. We all have bios. We, we all got up this morning with bios. We were like, you know, living kind of slow, but we got here and, and we made it. But, but that was physical life. This is talking about eternal life. And once again, let's get these, these, these statements straight. 
He came that we might have this life and that we may have it more abundantly, which means we're to have it in this life and the life to come. We are to never leave eternity out of the picture. As Jesus spoke of giving abundant life in this life and in the life to come, so Abraham received the very same blessings of life in this life and in the life to come. So let me leave you with a couple of thoughts. How is your life being lived today? Are you trusting Him or are you ignoring Him? How is your life being lived? My encouragement to you is trust Him. Trust the Lord. Trust Him with all your heart. When God we trust, when God we trust, God will bless. When God we trust, God will bless. Whenever you see a coin or or a bill that says, in God we trust, think of these words, when God we trust. Quit putting your trust in that bill or in that quarter or in those in the monetary system of this country and trust in the riches that God alone gives us. When God, we trust, God will bless. And I want you to be blessed with the blessings of God this morning. And the blessing that God gives us is Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you come to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you're not sure, I want you to be able to tell that to someone today. Maybe they're standing up here in front and they'll pray with you. If you want to receive the Lord, because the Bible says, as many as received Him, to them gave you the right to become the sons of God to as many as believe in His name. God will change your heart, but you've got to trust Him. Entrust your heart to Jesus today. Let's pray.